Support for WERU comes from Village Soup, the Republican Journal, providing the communities of Waldo, Knox, and Hancock counties with news, information, ideas, events, goods, and services on newsstands Thursdays and on the web at waldo.villagesoup.com. It's 3.59 and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. And this is Maine Currents, independent local news, views and culture for Wednesday, May 24th, 2017. I'm Amy Brown. Last November, Mainers voted to gradually increase the state's minimum wage from the then-current rate of $7.50 an hour up to $12 an hour by 2020. After 2020, increases would be tied to inflation. Despite the fact that the measure drew strong support, several bills have been introduced in the state legislature that roll back the increases in various ways. In some cases, the increase... Uh, the rate of the increase is reduced. Other measures would tweak the formula for TIP staff or for young workers or those in training. Some of those who advocate overturning the will of the voters have said Mainers didn't understand the consequences of their vote. Nine such bills were presented back in April, and yesterday the legislature's Labor, Commerce, Research, and Economic Development Committee held a public hearing on yet another, LD-1609, an act to support Maine's employers and encourage employers to hire young workers. Arguments were held on either side. They were reiterated from previous arguments on these types of bills. Today, we're going to listen in on the debate. The bill's sponsor, Senator Andre Cushing, was not present at the public hearing when it started, so Representative Susan Austin stepped in to read it for him. Welcome, Senator Cushing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Let me see. Where am I from? Oh... I don't know. It's a nice hat you're wearing. I assume if I'm I'm doing it, I'm a proponent. Uh, Whatever. Okay. Let's try to be serious here. Senator Volk, Representative Fecto, and colleagues of the committee, my name is, for a moment, Senator Andre Cushing, and I represent 15 communities in southern Penobscot County. I'm before you today to present the Department of Labor's bill, LD-1609, an act to support Maine's employees and encourage employees to hire young workers. This bill presents the governor's recommendations to address the issues raised by the minimum wage changes passed in the referendum question this last fall. Many of the provisions have been addressed by this committee and other pieces of legislation. However, it is important to recognize that once again, what seems to be a simple question on the ballot has far-reaching ramifications when one looks at the actual effect of the law once it has been passed. The chief executive <clears throat> excuse me, has reasonable concerns about Maine's future competitiveness. These concerns were echoed by the employees who testified to this committee on April 5th on the marathon day on the other bills addressing the indexing of the minimum wage and youth training wages. The minimum wage will be increasing by a dollar per year over the next three years and requires the salary level of the overtime exempt workers to increase by $3,000 in each each of those years. Something in our statutes, but that has never kicked in for Maine until this year and puts us out of step with the rest of the nation, except for New York and California. Once again, an unintended consequence of a referendum puts Maine in a category with California, the sixth highest economy in the world. These entry-level wages are also crucial to allow opportunities for youth and low-skilled workers at entry point to the workforce. Without this option, more barriers will exist for those who need to develop experience on their resumes to move into better paying positions. This bill seems to make more modest and gradual increases to the minimum wage, eliminates the indexing and decouples the minimum wage from the overtime exempt salary threshold, leaving that to the federal government. 
The goal of this bill is to ensure that low-wage workers receive higher pay while preserving jobs by giving employees more time to adjust to the increase over time. This is good for our workers, our employers, and people on fixed incomes. Thank you so much for your time today, and I would rather you didn't ask me any questions, and I'll take my seat. <laughs> Thank you, you Representative Austin. All good? I think we'll pass on the questions. Thank you. <laughs> Any other lawmakers here to testify in favor? Seeing none. Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. So good afternoon, Senator Volk, Representative Fecto, and members of the Joint Standing Committee on Labor, Commerce, Research, and Economic Development. My name is Julie Rabinowitz, and I am the Director of Policy Operations and Communication for the Maine Department of Labor. And I am here today to testify in support of LD-1609, an act to support Maine's employers and encourage employers to hire young workers. The Bureau of Labor Standards has oversight responsibility for the enforcement of the minimum hourly wage pay requirements in the state. This committee has already addressed a number of the provisions in this governor's bill and legislation that has come earlier in the session, and therefore I will focus my testimony on the provisions of the bill that currently do not have a legislative vehicle in process. The current law increases the minimum wage by $1 per year until the minimum wage reaches $12 an hour in 2020, and then beginning in 2021, the minimum hourly wage shall be adjusted on the first day of each year by the percent change of the consumer price index for urban wage earners and clerical workers, or the CPIW, for the Northeast region of the country from the previous 12 months through the preceding August, with the amount of the minimum wage increase rounded to the nearest multiple of five. As described in the department's testimony and handouts on the other bills on this topic, which you heard on April 5th, this leads to a minimum wage that will increase almost every year in increments that will vary almost every year. Maine's Consensus Economic Forecasting Commission has raised the following concern about the potential constraint on employment, on employment posed by the minimum wage reaching 11 and $12 an hour by 2019 and 2020. The commission, quote, remains concerned about the demographic situation in Maine and the resulting impacts on workforce availability. There are additional concerns about the possibility of out-migration or decreased in-migration resulting from the 3% surtax on incomes over $200,000, as well as limitations on employment growth as the minimum wage reaches 12, $11 and $12 per hour, unquote. Because the minimum wage in Maine statutes provides no flexibility for varying economic conditions in different regions of the state, this significant and ongoing increase may slow job growth or, due to the limited availability of workers with the right skill set, cause employers to leave the state in search of cheaper labor with specific skills or that, due to the lower cost of labor, are less costly to train. Other states recognize that a statewide minimum wage may not be in the best interests of more rural counties or employers. New York State provides that the Commissioner of Labor can set the wage outside New York City and in outside of outside of New York City and the three surrounding downstate counties. When in 2014 the Massachusetts legislature voted to raise its minimum wage over the next three years, it also adopted reforms to the unemployment tax structure to lessen the financial impact on employers by about $240 per employee on average. In 2019, Maine's minimum wage will be the same amount as that of Massachusetts, and in 2020, it will be higher. Maine's percent increase in the minimum wage of 60% over the next four years exceeds the percentage of all other states except for that of New York City and its border counties. And that provided the chart that gives you those percentages, uh, which is from the article I'm citing next. In the article, The Job and Wage Implications of State Minimum Wage Increases in 2017 and Beyond by Ben Jetus and Curtis Arndt, the economists predict Maine will lose 9,000 jobs through 2020 due to the increase and, a pro and project a total loss of 28,000 jobs by 2023 with a resulting loss of wages of $9,700 per job. The analysis method they used indicates that the minimum wage will affect employment over time through changes in growth rather than an immediate drop in relative employment levels. 
A number of Maine businesses have testified to this committee that they are able to comply with the initial increase that occurred this year and likely that for next year, but they are uncertain about the future increases to $11 and $12. Some employers even describe that they are not opening new businesses or additional locations. These real decisions by real Maine employers are in line with the analysis presented by these economists. As a strategy to preserve Maine's job, Maine's job growth, this bill would provide more time to accommodate to the increasing wage with more gradual steps retaining businesses and jobs. With these benefits in mind, the department urges the committee to gradually implement the increases to the minimum wage and to eliminate the automatic indexing. And thank you for your consideration. And some from the department can be available to attend the work session, which I believe is later this afternoon. <laughs> <clears throat> thank you very much. Any questions? Yes, sir. Uh, Senator Bellows. Um, so you explicitly mentioned that there, and, and I noticed this too, there are a lot of provisions of this bill that are in other bills before us. Are you going to suggest in the work session that we eliminate all the pieces of this bill that are duplicative of other bills? I think that that would be a reasonable task okay. for the committee to take. Okay. Um, any other questions? Thank you. Thank you very much. Anyone else speaking in favor of LD-1609? Good afternoon, Senator Volk, members of the Joint Standing Committee on Labor, Commerce, Research, and Economic Development. My name is Peter Gore. I'm the Vice President for Advocacy and Government Relations at the Maine State Chamber of Commerce. And I'm here to speak to you this afternoon uh, regarding LD-1609. Um, I'm doing this in the... Uh, in the uh, in the proponent section of testimony because we're on record with a number of the provisions that are contained in this bill of already supporting it. But um, I like to think that I'm a lot of things in front of this committee. A pragmatist is one of them. And so you folks have dealt with a number of these issues. And as a matter of fact, you voted on a number of these issues already. So some of the items that are contained in this bill have already been predetermined by this committee and are, will go to the full bodies for debate. And you didn't agree on all of them. You should absolutely be congratulated for coming to agreement, or for the most part, agreement around the tip credit issue. Um, but there are a number of other items in this bill that you have discussed and debated and you've decided upon already. The tip credit, as I mentioned, the minimum wage issue, the indexing, and the training wages. Um, I want to speak for a couple of minutes, though, about this bill juxtaposed to where the state is heading with respect to wage and hour increases over time. The language that's contained in this bill, which would set the minimum wage at $10.50 an hour, is language that the business community proposed in the last session, which ultimately didn't go anywhere. Um, but we suggested that the state should enact because it's more reasonable and sustainable. And we still believe that. We also were not supportive of indexing. Um, we think putting wages on autopilot over the long term is not necessarily a good idea because it doesn't take into account conditions that change in the economy. Um, but we, that was part of the, what passed in the referendum process, and that's where we find ourselves. Um, but everywhere I go when I speak to businesses now, um, I hear the, the these business people ask me, what is the legislature going to do about the minimum wage problem that we're sure to have over time? That we're okay at $9 an hour, we've made some changes, um, we've, waived our we've raised our prices, we may not hire another person this summer. At $10 an hour, we'll have a more acute problem, but above $10 an hour, the situation with regard to our operating costs, what it costs us to do business, particularly in more rural areas, will become acute. And will the legislature address this problem over the long term? And the answer to that question that I have to tell people is I don't know. Um, I know folks feel like there is time to address this issue. Um, and perhaps, and there is time, I suppose. I mean, indexing doesn't kick in until 2020, and the minimum wage will go to $10 an hour, but not above $10 an hour in January of next year. But next year, if you want to uh, do something to address a minimum wage in Maine that's greater than $10 an hour, it will require action of the legislature. So the easy thing to do would be to kill this bill here today because it's been 
either addressed um, or it's contained in other pieces of legislation. But I might suggest that you might want to carry it over in case you have an appetite to address the minimum wage issue or the indexing issue in the next legislative <coughs> session. With that, I'll end my comments. I'll be glad to answer any questions that you have. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Gore. Any questions? Representative Vashon. Peter, what is the average minimum wage in, in New England? Um, if you averaged it, someone told me it would be $9.20 an hour. If you took the New England-wide average right now, not figuring in what other states in New England might be doing in their legislature, because I don't know, I was told it would be $9.20 an hour. So if, if we were to carry this bill over... The purpose in carrying it over would be to... In January of next year, the minimum wage in Maine will go to $10 an hour. If nothing changes on that, in January of the following year, it'll go to $11 an hour. And that's where a lot of businesses, small businesses, who are operating in this state say, that's not a sustainable model for me. It's no longer productive. Um, for me to be in business. It's no longer profitable in Maine for me to be in business. That's just what I'm told. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Representative Stekis. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you, Peter. Uh, with your conversations with businesses, I'm, I'm thinking that they're probably similar to the conversations that I'm having. What happens, what happens to the rest of the workforce when the minimum wage, when the brand new person off the street comes to work at 9 or 10 or $11 an hour, to those people that have been there for several years that are making that or close to that? It's a, well, so that's already happening now. I mean, that's, that's, that is, we don't have to wait for it to go to $10 an hour. What's, what businesses tell me anecdotally now is the people who were making $9 an hour, which is a dollar and fifty above the 750 an hour where the minimum wage was you know prior to January of this year are now saying hey I'm only making that minimum wage now um, and I'm a shift I'm a shift supervisor um, I deserve more than minimum wage pay me you need to pay me more unspecified amount but you know a dollar fifty two dollars an hour more um, and if I can't get that then I'm going to go somewhere else well you might ask why would they go somewhere else are making the minimum wage $9 an hour and there's more jobs right now than there are people. So it's a no loss net, you know, it's no loss to them except for their seniority and their, where they're working. From a financial standpoint, if they're making $9 now in a job and they leave, they're going to make $9 somewhere else. So businesses are saying, in this very competitive market, I want to keep good workers, so I am going to raise their wages. But at the same time, to meet the cost associated with that wage and hour increase, I'm going to raise my prices, too. And if you haven't noticed, prices are up in the state right now. Follow up. So, so not, o not only with the, I mean, everybody can see on the surface, you know, $9 an hour is $9 an hour. Mm -hmm. $10 an hour is $10 an hour. Mm -hmm. what, about all the, what about all the other hidden uh, costs that go along with that. Um, workers' Comp's a great example of workers' comp is payroll-based. So when everybody's wages went up, everybody's workers' comp went up. That's the reality of by it. By a percentage. Yeah, by a percentage, right. So it compounds. Yep. Right. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else speaking in favor? Senator Chair Volk and members of the committee, my name is David Clow. I hear a state director of NFIB, a small business group with over 3,000 dues-paying members in Maine who provide jobs to, and paychecks to over 30,000 workers, and they're located in 400 communities from uh, the top part of the state to the southern part of the state. I just want to make a couple of comments, um, and uh, um, I um, agree with what uh, Ms. Rabinowitz and Mr. Gore had to say in their testimony. I want to amplify a couple of things. One, um, with regard to um, a statewide minimum wage, one size fits all, that Ms. Rabinowitz mentioned, New York State, and there are other states are beginning to recognize that there are differences based on the d demographics and the economics of regions. And to put it in perspective for this state, 
Maine is as large geographically as the rest of New England. So to have one state that applies, one wage, excuse me, that applies from Kittery to Fort Kent would be the equivalent of having a wage that applies from same wage that applies to northern New Hampshire and Stamford, Connecticut, or Fairfield County, Connecticut. Fairfield County is one of the most prosperous counties in the nation and a uh, much higher vote uh, in Fairfield County. So states like Oregon, for example, are recognizing that a tiered wage, and I should say that NFIB does not have policy on this yet, so I'm just saying it as an illustration. In Oregon, they have one wage rate for the city of Oregon, Portland, excuse me, that's a very, very large city. They have another rate for mid-sized communities and a third rate for rural communities, recognizing that the economies are not the same. With regard to the impacts that Mr. Gore and Mr. Benowitz said, it's not quite so much that the owner can't afford it, it's the owner's customer's base is not there to support the increases. It's the customer base to pay for it. And I've testified before, the impact of the minimum wage gets apportioned by the owner takes a hit, customers take a hit, and employees take a hit. Everybody shares in the rising cost. The cost also includes not just the, the wage itself, it includes these payroll taxes that the employer has to pay, which is Social Security and Medicare, as well as workers' comp. It's not unemployment because you're already above the threshold for uh, wage base for, for unemployment. And I apologize, I don't remember, but it is uh, um, a significant amount. Each dollar increase in minimum wage is thousands of dollars to a full-time job to an employer that's providing that job. In addition, um, <clears throat> excuse me, in addition that um, is affected by, uh, it was mentioned, the the bumping effect on other jobs. Research has been done by national think tanks that show that the ripple effect could be as much as 150% of whatever the minimum wage is. So at $9 an hour, the ripple effect could be, what is that, it's, um, sorry, <laughs> I'll go with 10, make it easy on myself, <laughs> $15 an hour. Uh, trying to, th um, and everything, but, but uh, people have been in jobs with that have certificates with skills want to keep some sort of parity with those below them, uh, both on the skills and on the amount of time that they spend on the job and amount of time it's spent on the job as a skill as well. Um, also, the, um, the youth wage, uh, bear in mind that uh, there are a number of businesses that are very dependent on youths for summer employment, and the youths are very dependent on the businesses for their uh, summer employment. It's for them a win-win situation, but I've heard from business owners that have a heavy percentage of, summer, uh, of high school kids working in their business that the increases in minimum wage is going to put squeeze on them to hire as many kids as they've hired before. The more it goes up, the bigger the squeeze. They can't raise their ticket prices too, too much because they begin to price themselves out of the market. And at the same time, they're also concerned because there's a proposal before the legislature to apply a 5.5% sales tax on a ticket price. So they feel like they're getting squeezed not only in the labor cost, but also on the ticket price from below and from above on the, on the price that the uh, consumer pays. The changes in overtime, uh, what you can do to improve the overtime situation and understanding the law would be welcomed by small business owners. Uh, it's a, it has an effect. I've tried to find out what do other states do with, with overtime. Uh, there's no easy chart to show you what other states do, but a number of states uh, do follow the federal overtime rule, um, both with regard to coverage as, as well as uh, uh, salary base, and uh, Maine does not do that um, very perfectly, especially with the salary base. So what you can do to improve the situation, be welcomed by small business owners, and I will end it there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Mr. Clow. Any questions? You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. This public hearing for one of several bills that would roll back the minimum wage increases voters approved back in November was held in Augusta yesterday. Representative Vashon. What have we achieved by this? By, by what? By raising the minimum wage. I, I, I don't see that we've gotten any benefit. You've talked about rising, raising the wage 
has risen the cost of goods, mm -hmm. has risen the cost of benefits. So who's, who's benefiting from a rising raise, wage when their cost of goods now costs them more? There is some, uh, there's some benefit, but there's not a dollar for dollar benefit. Every dollar of increase in the wage gets paid for some way, and what I was explaining, it gets paid for by a combination of higher prices on the consumer, less profit for the business owner, and less uh, maybe uh, uh, planned increases in benefits for workers or planned increases of wages, other wages for workers get held in, in check because it has to be paid for somehow. And a couple of years ago, I likened a minimum wage increase um, to like, um, like a drug ad you see on TV. The drug is advertised, uh, this will do such and so for you. However, and then they get into all the side effects that may occur. And there is a however. It doesn't benefit everybody equally. And it doesn't benefit everybody in the state equally. It doesn't benefit individual workers equally. It's very, very complicated. There is some benefit, but there's not a 100% benefit. And we don't know what the negative is, and that will accumulate over time. Follow up? Follow up. And in that advertising, if we're going to parallel drug, uh, drug advertisements, it also says it includes the possibility of death, correct? It includes the possibility that you'd lose your job if the uh, owner can't afford that job or the business goes under. Death. Thank you. Any other questions? So uh, how, how do you define small business in the state of Maine? Just I'm curious. Um, there are various definitions, various <laughs> definitions. I'm trying to recall. It, it depends. Uh, it depends what purpose it's. Um, you're looking for the definition. Academic is, for example, 100 employees. If you are no SBA is 500, but that's um, that's for different. That's actually for their loan programs. Um, and there are various parts of the law. The Affordable Care Act was 50 or fewer. Uh, there's 25 or fewer, 20 or fewer, 15 or fewer, and then there's there's the one that. Uh, uh, if I can remember correctly, independently owned and operated, has been in business, um, and essentially is too few employees to get the job done, uh, able to avoid regulations it knows about, but gets cited for ones it never heard of, and has been in business long enough for the owner to question the wisdom of having started it in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> uh, because you don't really know what you're getting into until you get into it. Right. But. And at what point do... Um in, in your experience, what's the critical point in, in Maine typically in the last couple of years where someone feels like they have to hire either an HR firm or, or an HR person? Is there? I don't know. Uh, that's a great question. I don't know, and I've wondered myself about that. I know there's, there's a, uh, a manufacturer in the Bitterford soccer area who told me um, last month that they just hired an HR director, and they have several dozen people working for them, I think uh, somewhere between 30 and 50. But uh, um, they've been kind of using some services, but to have an in-house in uh, in HR director yeah. is probably somewhere between the 25 to 50 or yeah. 40 to 50. Any other questions? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else here to speak in favor? Anyone here to speak in opposition? Good afternoon, Senator Volk and members of the Labor, Commerce, Research, and Economic Development Committee. My name is Matt Schlobohm with the Maine AFL-CIO. Um, and needless to say, we are opposed to LD-1609. I think we've had much of this debate. Um, but I want to start by just saying we've heard from hundreds of workers who have seen direct benefit from the minimum wage increase. And I think of Kathy Rondoni, who's 73 years old, who's working um, to help her husband, who's in the veteran's home, who lost her home, who was working for minimum wage, and talked about $9 an hour, that 30 to 40 bucks a week means that she actually can 
buy windshield wipers when they break on her car. And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of workers where the basic dignity of being able to afford life's necessities is a tiny bit easier. Um, and that's going to continue to be true um, year after year for the one in three workers who will see a raise um, by 2020 when the minimum wage is fully implemented. Um, we're opposed to this bill for a number of reasons. It's deeply contemptuous of democracy. Voters spoke loud and clear on the minimum wage question. Um, it won with more votes than any referendum in Maine history. It won in most counties in the state, rural and urban. Um, and people knew very clearly what they were voting on. And it, it grew out of a rationale that um, this economy is tilted against working class people and that it's not um, working the way it should. Inequality is through the moon. It's at record levels. Wages as an overall percentage of gross domestic product, as of our gross domestic product, are lower than they've ever been. And people working full time should not live in poverty. And that's the dirty little secret of, of the low wage economy that has become the new normal. Um, we've had tight labor markets for six, seven, eight years, and wage growth has been anemic. Um, so the, the typical dynamics that uh, dictate how economies should work have have not followed through on their promise. Um, and I, I think it's just so important that in this debate uh, we often talk about you know the consequences on employers and and sure there will be there will be consequences. Um, I, I'm not going to pretend that there are no consequences to this kind of policy. But we're living with deep societal consequences of low wages. Um, people die earlier. People's kids earn less throughout their lifetime. People endure unnecessary suffering when they work full time and still live in poverty. So let's just not pretend there's, there's one side of the scale in terms of the consequences of a low wage economy. Um, the proposal that was passed was based on sound economic research. You know, the, the best research says that you want to hit a minimum wage ratio that stays at about 60% of full-time workers' medium, median wages. And ironically, the, the opponents of this proposal used this research for a very long time until they discovered that they weren't quoting it quite accurately, and the, the professor that did it called them on the carpet on it. Um, because by 2020, um, the median wage in Maine um, will be such that, you know, $12 would be about 57% of that and under that threshold and, and you know the right place to be in terms of trying to get the most bang for the buck to help workers and still have a positive overall economic impact. Um, I went through this bill section by section. We're literally opposed to, to every section. It, it denies, um, it would rob uh, thousands of workers of overtime um, that they we think they deserve. Um, salaried workers um, were opposed to the changes to mechanics. Um, it redefines uh, uh, tips in a way that um, for service credit uh, for service charges that take them away from the property of the employee, um, and it undoes literally everything that voters um, approved in uh, November. And we find that unfortunate. We're opposed to the training wage and youth wage. Um, and I will leave it there. I, I, I would just also say, you know, it's interesting having been in this debate for a decade. Every time any minimum wage proposal has come before this body, there's always a sky is falling argument. And, and I would just say we have a $9 minimum wage right now. We have an unemployment rate of around 3%. We have workers with more money in their pocket. That's a good thing. The sky has not fallen. I don't think it's going to fall in the next three years either. And uh, I would hope we can respect the will of the voters on this issue and would urge you to vote ought not to pass on this. Representative Vashon. Thank you. Talk about the sound economic research that was done. Yeah. And we hear that New England, on average, has a $9.20 wage. <coughs> so within our New England economy, why aren't the other New England states relying on that sound economic research? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think Massachusetts, uh, there's a ballot initiative to go to $15 statewide um, that will probably be on um, the either 2017 or 2018 ballot, and I would bet dollars to donuts it passes. So um, I, I think there has been a sea change in how people think about uh, their economies and whether workers are getting a fair shake. So I think the real the minimum wage is always dictated by politics and not by sound economic research. Um, and Maine has essentially had indexing for the last uh, 
you know, four or five decades, but it's just been indexing um, that's mediated by the legislature and politics. And we'll go for uh, seven or eight years as we have up until this referendum with a $7.50 uh, minimum wage. Not because that's based on anything, except some people support it, some people don't. Now, so I, I'm confused now. Okay. Um, are you saying it's politics that dictated this minimum wage or sound economic research? I'm saying up until this referendum, it's politics in the state of Maine that has largely determined what the minimum wage has been. But if you have a Democratic-controlled legislature and a Democratic governor, the minimum wage, just generically speaking, the minimum wage will generally be raised somewhat. If you have a Republican legislature and a Republican governor, it will generally stay frozen. If you have a divided government, perhaps you get a minor increase, but most likely you don't get any increase at all. That That's true in Maine and around the country for the last several decades in terms of how legislatures have made minimum wage increases. Um, the proposal that went to the ballot um, wasn't constructed willy-nilly. We tried to figure out what is going to most help workers and have a positive economic impact. I'll be the first to acknowledge, if you do a $32 minimum wage, there will be negative economic impacts. A $12 minimum wage by 2020 with indexing thereafter, in our estimation and based on sound economic research, is a sweet spot where you get the most benefit for workers and a positive benefit to the main economy that employers can absorb. Any other questions? Representative Sylvester and then Representative Steckes. Thank you, Mr. Shalom. Um, in, in any research that you've seen or, you know, the experience of other states, do most min workers making the minimum wage spend that money locally or do they spend it elsewhere, say, the south of France? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great question, right? So, I mean, this is one of the... Uh, Underlying arguments, when you raise the minimum wage, that money goes right back into milk and bread and the local um, auto mechanic shop and other things in the local economy. Folks are not stashing that away. They're not putting it into their retirement. They're spending that money almost immediately. When you go from making $8 an hour to 9 or from 9 to 10 there is a slew of basic needs. Um, you know, and it's, it's a basic Henry Ford principle. Henry Ford was not a... Uh, staunch labor advocate, but he recognized that when he paid his workers a little bit more and he, you know, was screamed at by the owning class when he bumped workers' wages up to $5 um, an hour, he did it because he, you know, he knew they could actually buy his cars, which he saw as good economics. Representative Steckes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Um, a couple of things. You, you, a couple of things that you mentioned. You mentioned uh, consequences. Um, and I'll, I'll ask you about that in a minute. But you also said workers have more money in their pockets. Is that all workers? What do we, is that all workers? Um, not necessarily. I mean, I think, I mean, one in three workers, based on uh, research, uh, will see a direct uh, or a direct wage increase or a wage increase where their pay gets bumped up, which was your earlier question about um, wage compression raising up. Um, well, I, I think on the whole, um, people, you know, whether it's you look at the decrease in uh, social service costs and welfare costs, um, but might some prices go up very modestly and somebody pays a little bit more for those? Um, yep. And I, I would argue that that cost, uh, in terms of societal costs, in terms of the benefits of people not living in deep poverty, um, in terms of the costs of incarceration and all the other things that come with poverty, are more than a gain from um, virtually every working person in Maine. So, so the, the workers that, that haven't had an increase have less money in their pockets? No, I, I don't agree with that on the whole. Um, so if, 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 if the products and services, they're, an if their products and services that they're buying cost more money and they're not making any more money, they have less money in their pocket. Um, if you were solely doing that equation, but I think it's a larger equation that you have to look at. I mean, you have to look at what happens to their tax bill, what happens to the overall costs of things in society. So um, is it possible that somebody making $25 an hour is paying uh, a little bit more for their ice cream cone? Um, yep, that, that's possible. And, and I would argue um, two things. One, that I think on the whole... The, they're not seeing a cost increase when you do the overall analysis of what the impact on higher wages is on the overall economy. Um, and I'd also argue that if they are paying a tiny bit more, that, it, that it's worth it for the good of the whole. I see. So, so to consequences, uh, it sounds as if you, 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 accept the, you accept the rationale that some are going to lose. 
So where, so where is that number? Where's that, where's that exceptional loss of either businesses going out of business, um, workers um, having less hours, or losing their jobs overall? The research, your research, and all kinds of other research, as you know, uh, this has been researched more than probably more than anything else right, out there. Right. The research shows people are going to lose their jobs. People are going to have less hours. Some businesses are going to go out of, bit, out of business. What's an acceptable level? There's no yeah. question that there, that does happen. What's an acceptable level? Yeah, and, and our research that the Chamber of Commerce and others were, uh, NFIB and others were citing um, from um, a university Cal Berkeley professor said that the, the sweet spot that you want to hit where you have um, positive effects is to have your minimum wage be 60% or under of full-time workers' median wages. And if you run the numbers in 2017 um, or 2020, you know, the full-time workers' median wage in Maine is estimated to be $21.23. You know, you work backwards, Twelve dollars is fifty-seven percent of that. So um, I think we. I, I agree with you, and I. You know, there is a point where um, you see um, some unintended consequences at, you know, twenty-five dollars an hour minimum wage. Sure, that that's going to, you know, wreak some havoc. But I think we are well within the range of a minimum wage that achieves deep improvements for low-wage workers. About one in three workers in Maine puts more money in the pockets of people in this state that are going to spend that locally and has an overall um, net positive impact. I guess we'll see. Thank you. Yeah. Any other questions? Representative Vashon? You mentioned that this especially would benefit the low-wage earners. Sure. And you spoke about the 73-year-old woman that now had money in her pocket yeah. to buy new windshield wiper blades. Yeah. That, that worker probably qualified for MSP Dell if they were really, really low income. So when you're looking at the federal programs there, of the wage that put more money in their pockets, did you consider that they now may lose their Medicare Part Part B and the implications on the cost of, of their meds? Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, you know, there's uh, work to do um, to think about how we make sure that, you know, all workers are getting the services and the uh, help that they need going forward. I don't think any of those. So, yes, we have thought about that. I think that will be an ongoing policy debate for the legislature um, in the coming years. I don't think any of those questions or concerns are a rationale for wage suppression and lower wages. Um, do we need to think about all of those things going forward? Absolutely. Um, is that an argument to uh, lower the minimum wage? No, I don't, I don't think it is. This is Maine Currents on WERU-FM. Returning now to Matt Schlobum, Executive Director of the Maine AFL-CIO, testifying yesterday at a public hearing before the legislature's Labor, Commerce, Research, and Economic Development Committee on uh, one of the bills that have been introduced to roll back the minimum wage increases approved by voters in November. Senator Amy Volk of uh, Cumberland is the chair of the committee. Any other questions? Um, so the night that we had heard the previous bills that were addressing yep. the minimum wage issue, um, were you here until the end? I was here with all of you until one one fifteen or one thirty okay. in the morning. So you were you here when Mr. Corbin from MESEP testified? Uh, I was here when Garrett Martin from MESEP Martin, Martin, testified. Sorry, yes. Corbin's the other guy. Sorry, that's I okay. got my Garrett's mixed up. Yeah, that's right. Um, so did you? He, I was very interested in what he had to say because um, it seemed to me that he was able to admit that the increase that was passed by Maine voters was an unprecedented increase in terms there is no historical increase in the history of this country as rapid. And so this was a little bit of an experiment. Did you do you recall that part of his testimony? Um, yes, I do. I mean, I think what he what he said is that um, you know what we're seeing is is much more aggressive minimum wage jumps um, in response to uh, huge levels of inequality and a growing low wage economy. So you know, I mean, other states have done this kind of thing: Oregon, Washington, Correct. New York, California. But did they do it at the same pace? 
They are currently doing it at the same pace. I mean, lots of states are going to $15. You know, I mean, California is is on track to $15 an hour. Large ports of New York are on track to $15 an hour. Oregon is going to $12.50, $13.50, $14.50, spread out geographically. um, So um, they are doing it on a similar time frame and um, with a similar speed as we are and going higher than we are, which uh, I think makes sense given that their economies are slightly different. But no one has successfully done that yet. Uh, I, I think Seattle has. I mean, cities have. But that's right, a city. Yeah, no yeah. other small rural state has successfully done that yet. Um, yeah, I'd, I'd say there are works in progress in okay. lots of places. So in some ways, you would admit, you would agree this is an experiment. Um, yep, I think it's an experiment that has a lot of data and research behind it. Um, I, I think it's fair to acknowledge that um, the scale of minimum wage increases has um, gotten more aggressive with Fight for 15 campaigns and with an economy that is just riddled with the deepest inequality we've seen since the Great Depression and low wages, you know, 44% of, of American workers make less than $15 an hour. So Why do you think that Walmart, um, over a year ago, announced that they were going to $10 minimum wage uh, across because, the country? Yeah, and they've supported some minimum wage increases. Right. Why do you think they made that decision? Uh, I think it was a business decision for them to, because they saw upward pressure all over the country um, in minimum wage increases in other ways, and they knew it would be uh, slightly easier to retain workers, and they knew that most of their workers shop there, and that when people have more money, I mean, they make the Henry Ford argument today. You know, I mean, they say when people have more money in their pockets, we do better sales. So I think all of those things would factor into their equation. So they were, were they responding to market forces? Um, political and market forces, I would say. Okay. So we heard Mr. Clow, I think it was, it might have been Mr. Gore, mention the um, possibility of there, of there being minimum wage zones. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you think would possibly be worth exploring in the state of Maine? Um, we'd be happy to explore that. You know, I think that means that uh, Southern Maine would, you know, in my estimation, you know, should be like coming up from $12. Um, and but but if folks, I mean, it's not an easy thing to pull off, and it's it can be a headache for businesses. Um, you know, if you operate multiple enterprises in the state of Maine, and you have one in Portland and one in uh, Lewiston and one in Aristic County. Um, But we're happy to have that conversation if folks think that's a better policy for the state. Um, Just to be totally, you know, transparent about it, I don't think we would want to go below $12 by 2020 anywhere, but we'd be happy to think about is is a slightly higher wage make more sense as the minimum in Portland than in Caribou? Like, we can have that conversation, sure. We'd be happy to. So it's fair to say you have no concerns about um, job loss or, or business closings in Representative Steckes' district? Um, related or to... Or a similar rural district. I mean... In, in general or related to the minimum wage? Because of, because of the minimum, I don't, I by don't, the time it turns to $12 an hour. I don't, um, if, look, if we see um, the sky fall as a result of this. Well, I mean, is that the sky falling or is that, I mean, how do you define the sky falling? Well, for, for look, look, our first, like we wake up thinking about workers. And I think the sky falls for a lot of workers day in, day out when they cut their pills in half, Senator. When they have to choose between am I buying food this week or am I buying medicine? And I'm not trying to be flip. I think this is the reality for lots of people and lots of the working poor in our state, that they face very dire situations because we have an economy where work doesn't pay the way that it should. And working full time can translate into poverty or or like deep, deep challenges. So um, I'm totally being straight that, yes, there will be um, businesses that struggle with elements of this. I'm not trying to like erase that. There's there's no policy on this scale that has 100 percent benefit, zero percent like consequence. Like that's real. There there are businesses that will trim hours as a result of this. There are businesses that will hire fewer workers. Like, yes, I, I can be honest and acknowledge that. And I think it would behoove all of us to acknowledge that thousands upon thousands of workers will have a little bit more dignity in their life, will have a little bit more security, will hopefully not live in poverty, will be able to buy those windshield wipers. And their kids, there will be a profound impact on their kids because when you raise earning levels for single mothers who are the biggest beneficiary of this, their children's lifetime earnings 
it's like jumped dramatically. And so I just think if we're going to have an honest and frank conversation and put talking points aside, um, we, we should do that on both sides of the ledger. Do you have a breakdown? Because I, thousands upon thousands, and my impression of what I know about the minimum wage serving on seven years on this committee is that there are very few adults that earn minimum wage. So I would be interested would, in documentation of, for Maine specific, and I don't care about what happens in yeah, Seattle or no, California, yeah. but Maine specific data about adults earning minimum wage. Yeah, and who are supporting families. Right, right. And I, I would think, be very interested in that. Yeah, and my argument, just to be crystal clear, is I think you're right when you're talking about $7.50. I don't think that's a, a large number of adults. Um, uh, but when you're talking about a minimum wage that goes to $12 by 2020, you're talking about, and, and the bump up effect on workers making $12.20, um, you're talking about one in three main workers um, getting a raise, of which most, the vast 90 percent of whom are adults and many of whom are supporting families. Um, so I would be happy. There's a lot of, I'd be happy to provide the data on that. Yeah. I will get that to you I'd be tomorrow. very interested to see that. Great. Anybody else have any questions? Thank you. Thank you. Again, that was Matt Schlobum, the executive director of the Maine AFL-CIO, testifying yesterday before the legislature's Labor, Commerce, Research, and Economic Development Committee on LD-1609, just one of several bills that have been introduced to roll back the increases in minimum wage that the voters approved last November. Later last night, the committee voted 7-6, to six, ought not to pass on the bill, but it does still face floor votes, as, does several, as do several other related bills. So you still have time to let your legislature know what you, legislators know what you think if you have an opinion about this. We asked Matt Schlobum for a comment about this slew of bills. Uh, there were at one count at least 10 that were pending that would roll back some aspects of what voters approved in November. And here's what he had to say. Quote, <clears throat> excuse me. Over 420,000 Maine people voted yes on question four, more than any other referendum in our history. Voters said loudly and clearly that it was time to raise wages for Maine workers. The legislature should respect the will of the voters and leave question four as passed. It's disappointing that Republicans are attacking democracy itself and seeking to cut worker wages by rolling back every aspect of the voter-approved minimum wage increase. Maine voters, Maine people voted for a wage increase because the cost of food, rent, and other basics have been rising for years while wages have been stuck. In a time of skyrocketing inequality, putting more money in the pockets of working people is the best way to raise the standard of living for tens of thousands of Maine families. Each of these rollback bills would take money out of the pockets of Maine workers. These bills are an insult to the overwhelming majority of voters who approve this increase in the minimum wage. The legislature should respect the will of the voters and leave the new minimum wage law as approved. End quote. Again, that was from Matt Schlobum. The uh, executive director of the Maine AFL-CIO, who you heard testifying last at that public hearing that took place yesterday. Shifting gears now, we have just enough time to bring you one of the speakers from an event that was held in Bucksport last week that brought together several environmental groups and members of the community talking about issues of concern. It was called The Future of Our Forests, Rivers, Lakes, Fields, and Ocean, and it was hosted by the Maine Common Good Coalition. Renata Moise talked about a new cruise ship pier being proposed for Bar Harbor, a story that we hope to cover in further depth in the near future. We've edited out some references to photos that she made in her presentation to make this more understandable for a radio audience. I live in Hancock, and Hancock is one of the peninsulas that come out into Frenchman Bay. What's happening is a mega cruise ship pier is proposed and on full throttle to be built where the old Blue Nose Ferry Terminal is. Um, it, we came together as a community of towns around the bay as people heard about it um, and kind of started to say, oh my God, what does that mean for us? And we started meeting over the winter. Um, my husband is a kayak, a sea kayak guide, and um, he had heard about this even four years ago by going to Bar Harbor Town Council meetings. So we had started meeting and started saying, what can we do? And we formed the Friends of Frenchman Bay. Acadia National Park is all those mountains and the mega cruise ship here is going to be right directly half mile from Acadia National Park. Um, there is a seal colony that lives 
um, deep up in the estuaries. Gail McCullough is a seal researcher and she's researched them for 35 years. And there's a seal jumping. And so as I wrote on the top of this, all of us who live here are in danger. Uh, these ships are immense. They're more than a thousand feet long. They are 17 stories, 200 feet high. They carry up to the biggest ones right now, 6,000 6, passengers and probably two or 3,000 crew. The crew don't get off though. They live in subhuman conditions in the bottom of the ship. Um, uh, there are also, of course, smaller cruise ships. They range the expensive cruise ships are maybe 500 people, and then the mid-priced cruise ships are two to 3,000 people, and the cheap cruise ships are the huge ones that, that come. This is a multi-billion dollar industry. They make billions of dollars of profit every year, and they don't care about anything. Any regulations that do exist, there's nobody to enforce them. They're dumping... <coughs> just sewage and everything into our water and there isn't really any stopping it because there's nobody here to stop it. Um, Alaska has is the only state where they put somebody on as a monitor on the cruise ships before they when they come into Alaska waters and they can they actually monitor the pipes going out of the ships um, but that's the only place in the world that does that. The actual pier is going to be a half mile long or up to a half mile long. Um, the who we're up against is the Bar Harbor Town Council, the State of Maine DOT, Paul LePage, Royal Caribbean Cruise Lines, and Bermelo Azramilan Partners is, sounds like, uh, like a person. It isn't, it's a huge corporation company that builds cruise ship piers. And they've been advising the Bar Harbor on this and written nice, beautiful, glossy things since 2012. Um, and federal port money. Um, Mr. LePage went to Washington not too long ago and talked to Trump's um, transportation advisors about money for ports in Maine. So it's all connected. So we formed Friends of Frenchman Bay and they, um, we've been, we've raised money, we've been, we're not a nonprofit, we're just people. And we put ads in the Islander newspaper against this. We brought in a speaker, Ross Klein from Canada, he's an international expert, he's speaking about how to have, like, how to, what kind of a, of a Bar Harbor do they want? Because Bar Harbor does not seem to understand, and I'm talking about the city council, that what's happening there is gonna affect the whole bay and the whole region. They just look at it as an economic thing for their town, and nobody else has a say in it. Um, there, the citizens in Bar Harbor gathered 400 signatures this spring to try to, they did, they've put an article on the ballot for June for Bar Harbor residents only to vote on, which would limit, um, the size of cruise ships and the number of the landing caps of passengers so that it would have to be voted on by the people to be changed from what it is right now. And that would help to prevent the mega cruise ship pier. The state of Maine put into, the state of Maine owns the land right now and they put into their option to buy with Bar Harbor that if 13 passes, they won't sell it to Bar Harbor. The state of Maine wants the mega cruise ship pier. And so anyway, the Islander made a cartoon making fun of us, which says friends of friends of Maine friends of friends groups. So anyway, there will be two ships at a time, plus ships docking in the harbor. This year, 171 cruise ships will visit Bar Harbor. That's up, I can't recall, between 30 and 45 percent from last year. So they're just plowing them through. So this is from the website of Ajamil Bermelio and Partners. We plan and design the highest revenue producing waterfronts, ports, and cruise destinations in the world. They've built the Port of Miami, San Francisco, Singapore. They bring these ships in and they, they produce horrible amounts of diesel, very dirty fuel. They get exemptions for, for cleaner fuel. Um, putting electric plug-ins costs $10 million a berth and a million dollars a ship. So that's not gonna happen. And so this is, we've made our Facebook, please like us, Friends of Frenchman Bay. We have hashtags if you do Twitter, Save Acadia, No Acadia Megapier, Save Acadia Dark Skies, Too Big for Frenchman Bay. And I've followed, I don't do much on Twitter, but I followed Royal Caribbean and says, say, don't put your pier in our bay, tender in. Because right now, the ships come and they bring people in with tenders back and forth. Um, once you have this enormous pier, there's no stopping anything and there's no local control. So we are praying that the town of Bar Harbor, the people, when they vote on June 13th, June 13th, vote for Article 13, which gives them some choice in the amount of people and the length of boats docking. And um, hopefully they'll even vote down 12, which changes all the zoning at the um, old ferry terminal.
So I made this um, cartoon to rebut, which says a world without citizens groups, and it shows huge cruise ships, dirty water with dead fish and bottles floating, and a McDonald's on top of one of the Porcupine Islands, and giant um, cell towers on top of Cadillac Mountain. So it's a fight. I don't know if we're going to win, um, and I just we're doing everything we can. So thank you for your help. There we go. Area resident Renata Moisa speaking about uh, her th giving her thoughts about a proposed pier for cruise ships in Bar Harbor. Her talk was part of a forum in Bucksport that took place last week, hosted by the Maine Common Good Coalition. We hope to bring you more coverage of that issue soon. And thanks to John Greenman for recording the event. Unfortunately, many of the speakers in the audience were too far from the microphone, so we can't bring you the rest of the audio. But a video was recorded, and if that becomes available on YouTube or a publicly accessible place, we will post a link on our Facebook page so you can check out the rest of the speakers there. You've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. Catch us here next Wednesday at this time, and then in June, we're moving to Tuesdays at 4. You can reach us at news at weru.org. Thank you for your support last week during our pledge drive, and keep it tuned here for Democracy Now! coming up next, and then Jazz Straight Ahead, only here on your community radio station, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at weru.org. O-R-G. Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported, nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. On May 31st, 10 to 11 a.m., W E 